This podcast is supported by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash the dinner party. Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. I heard a great joke the other day. How is an electric guitar like a vacuum? When you plug them in, they suck. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Andrew Dost, keyboardist, not the guitarist, you'll note. For the band Fun, that'll help break the ice. Fun was just nominated for six Grammy Awards. None in the comedy category, though. Probably not. But uh, speaking of comedy, later in the show, we will speak with Saturday Night Live cast member Fred Armisen, co-star and co-creator of the TV show Portlandia. Also coming up, legendary satirist Kinky Friedman gives us a Texas-sized helping of etiquette advice, mm. and we learn the shocking truth about that fish you think you're eating. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these news headlines. Jazz pianist and composer Dave Brubeck has died. The president and Boehner are digging in their heels as the fiscal cliff approaches. Palace officials confirm the Duchess of Cambridge is 12 weeks pregnant. Now for something you haven't heard, we're joined by Sadie Stein. She's a deputy editor at the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? A story which is of tremendous import to the state of Rhode Island, hmm. right. but also to the larger uh, 49. And they're all larger, yeah, by the way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that is a story concerning Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island. Yes. And a big proponent of the separation of church and state. All right. Since his death, they've had in the Brown Library a series of his papers. Brown University? Yes, exactly. Which are surrounded by notations, handwritten notations in an indecipherable code. Or mm. I should say, heretofore indecipherable. Whoa. Because? Because recently, the 21-year-old undergraduate math major cracked the code. Nice. Wow. These millennials, they're geniuses. we got to stop they are. them. And, and the way he did it is pretty ingenious because he looked into Roger Williams's background and found that he had been a stenographer in early life. Like in court. Yeah. And as such, he knew a kind of 18th century shorthand, which later evolved into this notation. And as such, he was able to translate it. And it's just a bunch of limericks, right? It's just a bunch of dirty. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> well, pick up my dry cleaner. It sounds basically... Lodge loves Tina. He was commenting on the issues of the day, which happened to be um, infant baptism. Oh, wow. You know, oh. questions of original sin, which were really big in theology. So for those who are interested in Roger Williams scholarship, this is a really big deal. Wow. For those of us interested in secret codes... Also a big deal. Yeah, but with this basically, though, is no one's been able to crack it until this kid. We just have to trust him, though, right? Because he could completely, yeah. he could be lying. But in the movie version, <laughs> like, how do we know? In the movie version, the code may be slightly more exciting. It may involve a treasure map. Yeah, that's someone true. call Tom Hanks and tell him to grow his mullet back. We might need him for a feature movie, Roger Williams Code. Yeah, instead of the Vatican, you have the the equally luxurious Rhode Island. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hit. Sadie Stein, thanks for the small talk. Always a pleasure. And now, time for cocktails. 
Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a wishing well, but instead of water, it's filled with booze. It's just like that. First, the history part. This week back in 1919, the town of Enterprise, Alabama, erected one of America's oddest monuments. Now, the Alabamans at your dinner party might know what it was. Michelle Philippi is here to tell everyone else the story. The people of Enterprise didn't just overcome pestilence. They were thankful for it. It all began in 1915. Back then, everyone in town grew cotton. That is until the boll weevil showed up. The evil insect had just destroyed Mexico's cotton crop. Now it was happy to chow down on Alabama's. Enterprise farms were nearly wiped out. That is until a local named H.M. Sessions did some research and learned the area was great for farming peanuts. The first crop paid off big time. Soon, other enterprising enterprisers switched to peanuts too. Eventually, the weevils moved on to wider, fluffier pastures, but the pest had taught locals the value of diversifying their crops. So, in December 1919, they erected a monument to the boll weevil, honoring it as a, quote, herald of prosperity. The monument looks kind of like the Statue of Liberty, but instead of a torch, she's holding a giant weevil. It's not the original monument. Some teenage boys ripped the weevil off that one, along with both the statue's arms. As of now, Enterprise is not planning a monument to the scourge of teenage boys. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. We're on the line with Wes Frazier. He is a bartender at the Bottle Tree Cafe in Birmingham, Alabama, which is about 200 miles north of Enterprise. So, Wes, what cocktail did the history inspire you to make? I came up with one called the See No Weevil. (laughs) I like it already. You're a man after my own heart with that pun. (laughs) Tell me more. What's in it? Well, there is no peanut liqueur, so I was trying to work peanut into it as best possible. I know. I knew this was going to be a curveball for you. This is a tough one. Yeah. I tried uh, pureeing peanut butter, but that didn't work so well either. (laughs) So to keep the word nut in it, Tom Bagby, who is our head chef here, he came up with a uh, vanilla coconut simple syrup. Wow. Yeah. The drink itself is stoli vanilla, cream de cacao, the vanilla coconut syrup, and half and half. And then on top of that goes a little sprinkling of toasted coconut and some cinnamon on top of that. Man, that sounds delicious. It is pretty incredible. And actually the coconut seems is a little reminiscent of the cotton that once was yeah, the primary yeah. crop down there. Yeah. You have this all figured out. Yeah, it took a while, though. That was about my fifth drink. <laughs> so um, in other words, the bull weevil forced you to innovate and diversify. <laughs> I guess so. Enrico, that sounds like a great drink, but Indeed. since taping that, I've learned there are peanut liqueurs out there. Uh-huh. It seemed like if we did it with licorice that we would do it with peanuts. It, it's happened. For instance, there's one called Peeny Wally. <laughs> I'm not making that name up. That sounds like something a child would call another child. You know? Or a child would drink, yes. Indeed. And there's Castry's Peanut Rum Cream Liqueur. But no Weevil-based alcohol. No. No Weevil Wally okay, is out good. there yet. Uh, folks, drink recipes infest our website you can find them at dinnerpartydownload.org and now the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things and today our guest is organist cameron carpenter his virtuoso playing and flashy persona have made him one of the most sought-after performers in the world 
He's also an innovative arranger. He's known for organ versions of everything from Bob Dylan to his specialty, Bach. Here's his list, inspired by that Baroque master. I'm Cameron Carpenter, the organist. I really believe deeply in the reinvention, not only of the organ as a medium, but in the image of the organist. So it's natural for me to want to look outside the Bach box. And so here's my list of three selections that are derivative works on compositions by Bach, but which push one or another envelope so far as to become their own entities. My first selection is Lithe Bells, an original work by Percy Granger based on Bach's composition, Sheep May Safely Graze. The figure that Bach uses to symbolize the little bells on the sheep peacefully jangling in the meadow, as if to imply some probably deeply Lutheran sense of peace and fulfillment, with the usual smattering of guilt on top, of course, is achieved by these little open sixths that occur throughout. in Granger's hands. The whole work is romanticized to an extreme that makes it a completely different work, although it's derivative of the original. It follows the same structure. It begins and ends more or less the same way. But Granger's orchestration of this not only carries those bells to a a much increased height, but also wonderfully reharmonizes the whole tune to a, a, in a way, a jazz, but also perhaps Wagner-influenced height that Bach himself probably would have enjoyed immensely. Granger was extremely fond of tuned percussion, so there are all kinds of metallophones and Deegan instruments, marimbas, late romantic instruments that didn't even exist in, in the days of Bach's orchestra. It's everything from a total shift of instrumentation to uh, also a shift of the actual harmonies. It becomes a kind of future version of Bach's original. The second of the Bach reinterpretations that's dear to my heart is uh, that of the Bach chorale prelude, Rejoice Christians. The genius of this chorale prelude is the combination of the fairly slowly moving tune, which is played in half notes, against a very quick right-hand gesture that is this rejoicing sort of uh, character that carries on in the music. Under all of this, there's a, a rapid moving bass line, which gives a sense of buoyancy and anticipation. The version which has informed my own playing of this work is actually a piano arrangement by the Italian pianist and composer Ferruccio Busoni. Busoni was an incredible reinventor of pre-existing works. And in this case, the original was written for organ, and Busoni uh, takes all of these three parts, the, the Boolean bass line, the difficult left-hand part, and the original hymn tune, and combines them in such a way that the whole is playable on the one keyboard of the piano. It would be very difficult not to have your mind blown by Busoni.
The third work which I'd like to suggest would be Jazzy Bach from the soundtrack from the animated film The Triplets of Belleville, music by Benoit Charest. In this two-minute treatment, the pianist rather ingeniously does what I believe is an improvisation on the prelude in C minor from book one of The Well-Tempered Clavier. The Well-Tempered Clavier is one of Bach's ultimate musical statements, a collection of two books, each book containing 24 preludes and fugues, so a total of 48. It has one major and one minor prelude and fugue in all keys. This is a, you know, a, a major intellectual and musical outpouring, one of the ultimate touchstones of keyboard-based thought, really. Jazzy Bach. It, uh, it is a parody and yet terribly serious. It's, it's a new reading of the original, but like the whole concept of range in itself, if you know the original, then you're able to recognize in this departure how brilliant the departure itself is. I'm not a person who smiles a lot, but uh, I was certainly filled with admiration. And this is, this is one of those moments where you wish that you'd thought of it yourself. The guest list from star organist and Bach interpreter Cameron Carpenter and Brendan, one of Cameron's innovations, by the way, like mm-hmm. in, in his version of that Busoni tune, is to play a melody that's intended for a player's hands with his feet. Right? Wow. It's amazing. So he's an appendagist as well as an organist? Is that what we're learning? Yeah. I, well, <laughs> are appendages organs? I don't know. I think appendages are actually percussion instruments. That makes sense. All right, people, we are going to take a break. Coming up, comic Fred Armisen cops to working blue when the dinner party continues. This podcast is supported by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers, offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is Joseph Anton, a memoir by Salman Rushdie. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash thedinnerparty. That's audiblepodcast.com slash thedinnerparty. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, satirist Kinky Friedman, the last of the Jewish cowboys, answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, documentarian Vikram Gandhi tells you how to become a guru. But first, it is time to meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's Fred Armisen. This is his 11th season as a cast member of Saturday Night Live. He's also the co-creator and co-star of the Peabody award-winning sketch comedy show, Portlandia. They want a Peabody? We were robbed. I'm (laughs) mad. I know. We should, we'll talk about that later. Good. Anyway, next Friday, a special episode called Winter in Portlandia airs on IFC. The show starts its third season in January. When I met with Fred, I asked him what fuels the show's love of satire. I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know the name for it. Definitely not cynical. But then again, I'm not a cynical person. I don't mm. think any of the writers on the show and performers on the show are, are cynical anyway. Yeah. Part of the fun of the show for me is that as a city dweller, you guys are sending up things that I encounter in my daily life. You've been a comic for a while. Why is that so funny? Like, wh- why is it so much fun to laugh at ourselves? Is it just narcissism? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's like positive narcissism. (laughs) Maybe it's like a good version of it. Well, here's a clip that kind of gets to what we were saying. It captures a modern dilemma that many of us have had. It's the idea of the spoiler alert in the age of on-demand television. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
We watched uh, Breaking Bad last night. Oh my God, no spoilers. No, no, we haven't watched it yet. We T-voted. Uh, we just finished the first season. So are you guys watching Game of Thrones? We just started. So good. Are you guys watching Mad Men season? No, stop, stop. Don with Megan or Ben. I had no idea. Did you guys think of the new season of Dexter? Michael C. Hall in the van? Spoiler alert. Don't spoil it. Okay, what about Downton Abbey? The Christmas special was wonderful. Oh, shut up. And it's Spacey as Kaiser Soze. He's Luke's father is actually Darth He's Vader. What? She's the sister and the daughter. She's they just kill off Dumbledore. What are you going into that scene with? You have a script? It's a combination of things. So. We go, okay, we're, it's going to be a sketch about spoiler alerts. We made a list of shows we're going to reference. Yeah. And it's pretty much everything. And then the editors just take it and they just make it this really, I mean, we shot all day, you know. So you got your start as a performer, as a drummer in the punk rock band Trenchmouth. Yeah. And from there, you took what one could call an alternative path to comedy. Yeah. You didn't tour comedy clubs. You, you didn't join a sketch comedy troupe. No, no, none of that. Instead, you started doing stand-up as an opening act for your friends' bands. It was always music kind of music-based. And yet here you are on Saturday Night Live, which for a comedian is like, I don't know, that's like becoming president for some comedian. Yeah, the Yankees. Does it seem strange that someone with your background would end up there? I grew up on punk. Generationally, I missed the kind of first wave of punk. Yeah. Uh, I'm from Long Island, but a lot of punk was introduced to me through Saturday Night Live. Really? Like bands performing on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, because... I'm going to consider Devo a punk band. I'm going to okay. consider the B-52s a punk band. I'm not going to fight with yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Fear was on. Yeah. The specials. That yep. was one of the best, the best thing I've ever seen on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. That show is already speaking to me, saying we entertain punk here. That's interesting. It was a very inviting punk rock place. The fact that Lauren Michaels put the specials <laughs> on NBC. NBC. Yeah. yeah. They didn't have any hit records. That, to me... It's like, that guy is introduced so some punk to me. So what you're saying is, instead of being the punk who made it on Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live made you a punk. Y- you could even argue, if you went crazy about it, that Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, those are, come on, yeah. those are punks. I, that's where I thought you were going with that. They were. <laughs> yeah. Those are, they look like it. They didn't really give. No. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't see them kind of, you know, no, that's gloss it up. I mean, and they live punk lifestyles, they for better punk for lifestyles. Yeah. They, they could have been in Who's Do. <laughs> You know, that's what it looks like. And and that says a lot. So that path to that show wasn't a puzzle to me. Like what? Uh, It's like it absolutely is a punk rock place. I do have one more question about your career trajectory. And it is such a weird thing. I I wonder if it's even true. Were you once a backup drummer for the Blue Man Group? Yeah. (laughs) Well, tell me what what was going Uh, on. I was one of the drummers for the Chicago show. You wore blue? No, no, no. Okay. There's the Blue Men. Three guys, you know, in blue uh, makeup. And then there are three musicians. Okay. I did it for a couple years. And you did that, and it was just for extra cash or just kind of... Dude, that was my living. (laughs) That's the first time in my whole life that I ever got a paycheck for (laughs) For anything in show business, for performing. Huh. And to me, it was like a million dollars. Yeah. I was like, I got paid $100 a show, (laughs) so I'd make whatever, 300 bucks a week. And to me, it was like having a million dollars. I was like, I got a check (laughs) from playing the drums. And I thought, I actually thought, wow, I made it. This is it. Yeah. I'm, this is what living is. Well, you've clearly made it because I'm about to ask you our two standard questions. Uh, the first of which is, what question are you tired of being asked? I will never in my life complain about being asked a question. I'm in a very fortunate place. And the day where I'm saying, I wish people wouldn't ask me, that's a very, I know, I'm glad you're doing it. I love this part of your show. Mm-hmm. But I can't speak the words of like, don't ever, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like. Why don't you ask me what answer I hate hearing when I ask that question? Let's hear it. No questions bother me. No, I'm teasing. Oh, come I'm on. Te- I'm teasing. Uh, you can tease me. I was teasing. All right, so our last question is, tell us something we don't know. It can be about Oh, you. I know one. I got one. Okay. I got one for you. Okay. 
This isn't one that's asked so often that it's annoying. It's just like the logic always gets me. Sometimes people go, do you guys tape Saturday Night Live? Do you pre-record it or is it actually live? And I always think like, yeah, it's... <laughs> I, I, you know, yeah. you don't have to do a lot of research to be like, come on, it's a live show. It's that's Saturday It's night. called Saturday Night Live. And yeah. do you not get, do you not feel it? Don't you feel it yeah. when you're watching it? The, you know. um, all right, so one last question. Tell us something we don't know. It can be about you, mm-hmm. or it can be just a kind of weird fact about the world at large. I'll do both. I was raised in a very, very rough part of London till what? I was 30. Really, really rough. <laughs> the East End. London, Long Island? London, England. Uh-huh. This is a true British accent. Oh, really? Oh, wow. This it's is all, what it really sounds like. This is what Madonna's going for? Yeah. Yeah. And it was really rough. We beat people up, and, and we got beat up. Yeah. And we fought for turf. That's why you're tough. That's why I'm a pretty tough guy. Yeah. I was raised in a really rough part of New York, too. Mm. Bronx area, like really rough. Mm. Rough. Rough parts of Los Angeles. Yeah. South Central. And like, I did all three. Like, Uh I was in gangs in LA. I was in a really rough gang in New York. Mm. And then like a sort of tough, we called it tough in London. I can see why you seek refuge in Portlandia in this gentle world. Yeah, that's a pretend for me. But, you know, a lot of just... A lot of gang stuff, a lot yeah. of turf. It's all turf. What people don't understand is with gangs, it's all turf. <laughs> people think it's senseless violence. Oh, that there was a all this violence and that you know it's so senseless. No, it's turf. You we, need turf. You gotta it, defend your turf. People have this is what the problem is. Every gang has a different version of what turf is. Mm. And that's what I want the world to know. In Portlandia, they also have um they know where the turf came from. Yeah. It's like environmentally friendly turf. Or not environmentally friendly. There was compost yeah. on their turf? That's very important. Uh, do you want to tell the kids that maybe they shouldn't participate in gangs? No, so? I'm telling the kids not to judge what gangs are about, what gang violence is. Stop just assuming it's willy-nilly and just senseless violence. It's all about turf. Understand what you're <laughs> criticizing. And so, Rico, I was lucky to make it out of that interview alive. I'm glad you're um, here, man. Fred is an exceedingly tough guy. I felt that. He pulled a switchblade when I went to <laughs> shake his hand goodbye. It was ugly. Well, if you rolled with the Blue Man group, you would be tough, too, frankly. Actually, I don't know about that. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I can't believe I was rolled by a Blue Man. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Folks, you can join our gang on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. Eavesdrop. Writer actor Kanisha Foster is one of the core members of nationwide storytelling collective Second Story. She and her colleagues tell true personal tales, which they've compiled in a new collection. Here she is with a sample. Hi, my name is Kanisha Foster. I'm the associate artistic director of Second Story. I'm going to tell you a story today. I was 19. I was in London. I was like super straight edge. My parents were addicts, actually, so my big rebellion was, like, to not do anything ever and be, like, really good. And I was a nanny, and it was, like, my last day there, and this guy that was supposed to be looking out for me is my sister's friend. He's like, why don't you just have a drink? Just have a drink. Come on, just have one drink. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And so we had this drink, and I didn't know, but it was like rum, 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 a little bit of Coke. And, like, I thought that was normal. Not normal. And actually, um, Around the World was playing Daft Punk. I can guarantee you I was doing the robot. 
or dancing or having so much fun. He's like, let's go, it's the sunrise. And I'm like, yeah. So we walk and walk and walk. I'm not even thinking. We get to this huge gate and it's locked. And then we hear, this guy rolls up on a bicycle and he pulls out these keys. So I'm like, oh, can we go in? He's like, yeah, yeah, but if the police catch you, I didn't let you in. Cool, yes. And he goes, don't get shot. And I was like, what? What does he mean? I turned to my buddy and I was like, oh, yeah, didn't I tell you? This is the Queensland, yeah? And she keeps all her game here. I'm drunk, you know? <laughs> so we walk into the Queensland. We ended up, you know, like sitting by this tree that had fallen over and just like talking for a really long time. The sun's starting to come up and I see like these two headlights in the distance. I'm like squinting at it. And then all of a sudden I hear this shot ring into the air. And when the shot rings into the air, all of the birds, like Hitchcock birds, they cover the sky and you just hear like, we lay down. I'm like, what's going on? You know, like, and they're just shooting. My friend Luke is wearing like white, head to toe white. He looks like a disco dude, right? Definitely a target at this point. (laughs) And then I look and he's gone. So he goes from like being fluorescent to being invisible. I look around, he's jumped over this huge tree, six feet tall on its side. He's like, you've got to jump, jump. Leap over the tree and he's there. And we're like, we made it. And I look into the sky and it's, I mean, it's beautiful. The sun is coming up and the birds are there and it's pinks and blues and this huge green hill, like green that you can only see in England. And I think I'm safe. And then I see that the hill is covered with deer. And I realized that people behind me are shooting at the deer in front of me. So I have just jumped directly into the line of fire. They must have thought I was some leaping deer. I cannot believe I didn't get shot. And Luke's like, oh my God, we're going to get caught. We're going to get caught. I'm like, we are going to die. And if I die in England, my dad is going to kill me, is exactly what I said to him. He's a big, black, loud man, and he's going to knock on the Queen's door. And if he doesn't find me, he's going to have some serious words with the lady. As soon as as the hunters are gone and they, they like, load up their trucks, we book it out of there. When we get back to the gate, we can't get out because the gate doesn't open until 5 in the morning. We decide we're going to, like, climb out. There's a tree on the other side. We're going to shimmy down the tree. Uh, Luke goes first. He shimmies down the tree just like we talked about. And I start to think, why don't I just jump? And as I'm in the air, I think to myself, I should have hit the ground by now. And then I finally do hit the ground. I sprain both my ankles. I have to hobble home. So I broke into the Queen's territory, got shot at, jumped from I don't even know how high. And that's the story of when I had my first drink. Actress Kenesha Foster, her storytelling troupe's second story, just released the collection Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck, and you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Whoa! And now, time for Chattering Class. This is where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. Our topic today, how to become a guru. And our teacher is uniquely qualified to talk about this. He is filmmaker Vikram Gandhi. He made the mind-blowing documentary Kumare, which documents what began as kind of a prank. He pretended to be a spiritual teacher from India named Kumare, 
but which led him to actually attract and lead a real following. The film comes out on iTunes and video on demand this coming week. And Vikram, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, for those who didn't see the movie in theaters, what led you to start this whole pretty insane sounding project? Yeah, it's funny now. It, it's so normalized for me. But yeah, at some point it also felt a little bit insane as well for me. <laughs> I'm, I would hope. I, yeah, I grew up in a, a religious home to a Hindu family. And at some point in my early 20s, I started seeing Eastern religion becoming so mainstream in America, especially through the yoga world. And I also was watching Eastern religion sort of being reinvented. By, by these teachers, you mean? Yeah, by teachers. And it, I decided, let me make a documentary on, on this industry and focus on these people who call themselves gurus. And after doing this as a side project for a bit, I had this idea, well, wouldn't it be more interesting if I just pretended to be one of these people? Isn't that sort of the point that I was trying to make in this other film? And once I had that idea, it was hard not to go after it and do it. What what research did you do into these kind of guru types? So, you know, I went on the road with some of them. I went on the road with one guru who sings devotional Indian music, but he's from California um, and grew a following. I went hmm. to a yoga competition in Los Angeles that was put on by Bikram Chowdhury, who started Bikram Yoga. I went to India with some what we call spiritual tourists who were on a spiritual retreat. Well, what, what was common to all of these guys? Because those are very divergent kinds of things. You've got yoga instructors, you've got devotional singers. What, what was common to all of them? What, what are the standard guru traits that ended up in the character of Kumari that you created? Well, I mean, the main one is that the guru has the answer or answers. Guru means one who removes darkness, sort of this idea that somebody can be, quote, enlightened by... Right. either being around a guru or becoming a guru. So that was something that was familiar about everyone else. I think the gurus are authoritative. Mm -hmm. They don't leave anything up to question. They have an answer for everything, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's a real answer or it's a manipulation of words. But I think that's something. And, you know, they're telling a narrative their students are seeking, a narrative that puts the world in a context and gives order and structure to it it triggers a whole set of practices and a whole way of living. And that I think a lot of people are looking for. It's very seductive when somebody has a way to live your life that might be totally different from this, but somebody's confident about it. I created a series of made-up chants. And I taught nonsense rituals and yoga moves. People seem to like it. I felt connected to you right away. Um, something about you. I was like, I don't know, like I was like, I'll just follow him anywhere. I should say, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the movie, you did eventually reveal yourself to your followers as a fake. So a lot of your teaching leading up to that is preparing them to live without a guru. Did you come up with those teachings? Because they're actually very compelling. They're are so many things that Kumari's teaching took from people that I met along the way. This idea of a guru inside oneself is something that's taught by a lot of people. Yeah, Kumari tells everybody that they're their own best teacher. Yeah. The difference with Kumari is that, like, he really meant it. In fact, everything was based around the answer you're looking for is inside you. And it was a tricky one because you imagine being a guru and ending every class saying that you don't need a guru. That's a tough marketing pitch. But right, Coke doesn't say at the end of an ad, you know, you could make your own soda. Yeah, and, and, and gurus, you know, there's always a cliffhanger when it comes to teachings. 
each class leads to the next one and makes it more attractive to continue to come back. And that narrative keeps going on. Whereas Kumari was really about, listen, it's, I'm just a reflection of what you think you want y- yourself to be. But it's interesting. You're saying that you, you got this idea from other gurus, but you kind of meant it. In what way do they not mean yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, all of these people who are called gurus, first of all, people are called gurus by other people. And I've definitely studied with teachers who don't want people to put that on them. But I think at the end of the day, doing things for others that are positive is a hard business to be in. Mm. I noticed that with people who are yoga teachers and spiritual teachers, people who want to be out there and helping others, like you got to keep your audience, you got to keep people there and you got to play that game. Kumari didn't have to, so we could be pure. You know, because I wasn't building like this business as Kumari because Kumari wasn't real, I could just say what the truth was, which is, you know, none of this stuff is really important. All of the things that you want to find in yourself, that compassion, that purity of heart, even the diet or exercise regimen, it's all its all what you're imagining and you're projecting on this other person. It took this character to say what was really obvious to everyone. Vikram Gandhi, his documentary Kumare hits iTunes and video on demand this week. And we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, we learn about the fake fish phenomenon, and country singer and humorist Kinky Friedman gives us etiquette and grammar tips. There's y'all, there's y'alls, and there's all y'alls. That's pretty much covers it. Y'all that and more mm. when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we learn about a fishy food world phenomenon, and we answer your listener letters. A.K.A. your corrections. Yes, we're wrong sometimes. Correct. Despite the fact that each week we have someone stop by the show and tell us how to behave. Speaking of which, it is time for that part of the show. It's our etiquette segment. You have sent us reams of etiquette questions, and here to answer them this time around is a legendary satirist and self-proclaimed last of the Jewish cowboys, Kinky Friedman. He's a columnist for Texas Monthly Magazine. In 2006, he ran for governor of Texas under the campaign slogan, Kinky Friedman, why the hell not, and earned 13% of the vote. He is also a country-western musician. He has toured with the likes of Bob Dylan and had his songs covered by the likes of Willie Nelson. Speaking of which, he wrote the introduction for Willie's new book, Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die, and Kinky Welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, the Willie thing is, uh, the book, Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die, is now number six on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list. And uh, and it's, it's it's got some really good wisdom and uh, uh, advice, some and- of which... Well, I could say it, but... Uh, okay. Will we have to bleep it? I don't know. I mean, it's your show. I don't know what, you know. <laughs> it's pretty visionary. Uh, Perhaps we should leave the salty cowboy wisdom yeah. for the tour bus. I want to actually ask you if you came up with a title, because it actually sounds like one of your song titles. It's one of Willie's songs yeah. uh, that he sang with uh, Snoop Dogg and Chris Christopherson. All right. I claim credit for getting Willie to realize what a great title that was. For his book. Uh, okay. would be for a book and that a lot of people would not be familiar with the song. I- I'm telling you, this book, uh, this could be a financial pleasure for, uh, for both <laughs> Willie and the Kingster. <laughs> really? You get it? You, you wrote the foreword? You get a cut? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I'm, I'm actually, you know, we're partners in this book project. The problem was 
The editor wanted one voice, uh, and Willie does not like the concept of an editor. It's surprising. And frankly, neither, n- neither do I. An editor is someone who takes something great and they make it good. <laughs> <laughs> As journalists, we agree. Wow. I thought the title was actually Willie's Instructions to Keith Richards. Roll me up and smoke me when I die makes a great gift for Hanukkah or Christmas. All right. <laughs> All right no, enough plugging the book here. All right, buddy. All right. All right. We asked our audience to send in some etiquette questions for you, which is actually more apt than it may so far seem since you actually wrote a guide to Texas etiquette book. The Kinky Freeman's Guide to Texas Etiquette or How to Get to Heaven or Hell Without Going Through Dallas-Fort Worth. Exactly. <laughs> See, there's advice right in the title. <laughs> All right, so here's our first question. It comes from Jeremy in Nashville, Tennessee. Although he's from Nashville, he writes, Kinky, I'm about as Texan as they come. Even have a tattoo of the state on my back and the Lone Star on my arm. Unfortunately, I have a Yankee mom, so my accent isn't as Texan as it should be. When I'm outside the state, some people say, you don't sound like you're from Texas. I often want to punch them, but refrain. What's a proper Texan way to respond to such non-Texan ignorance? Well, I mean, I think actions are more important than words. So you can show them um, how to to drink the way we do it in Texas, which is drinking tequila cowboy style. And that is you, uh, you snort the line of salt and you squeeze the lime in your own eye and then you kill the shot. No, that would impress just about anybody. That means you're from Texas. Wow. Yeah, that's right. Or they're going to think you're so crazy they'll just walk away slowly and forget they ever mentioned it. Well, uh, I must say this. A lot of people do appear not to like Texans. It seems like the surrounding state, Oklahoma, of course. Is that true? Mm-hmm. There's a there's uh, a war between Oklahoma well, and Texas? Well, uh, there's a rivalry there, you know, that, but... Texans that meet each other around the world, though, there is a bond that I don't think is shared by a lot of other states. Why do you think this is, that Texas alone amongst, you know, I see a lot of people get tattoos of maybe their city or their hometown or something, but the state of Texas. There's there's some things like Buddy Holly. Um, Who's from Texas. Yeah, but a yeah. lot of Texas lives the way Buddy Holly did, where he was totally surrounded by just thousands of miles of nothing, you know, just emptiness, aching emptiness. And as a result, I think he, he created a really original style uh, of rock and roll. The sense of Texas identity comes from being basically surrounded by nothing and left to its own devices in a way. Yeah, having a lot of wide open spaces uh, between our ears, you know, and, and, and out there. <laughs> Both inward and outward. All right, here's our second question. This comes from okay. Sylvia via Facebook. She writes, being a Texan who has lived and worked in other states, I often have to explain the difference between y'all and all y'all, but find that most people don't get it. How would you explain it so they understand? Hmm. Well, I, I know that uh, the way you pronounce the towns, Dalit, Alton, Heaton. <laughs> Interesting. And, of course, the word Jewish is always one syllable. He's Jewish. That guy's Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna say the word Jew, that's a, that's multiple syllables. That's like really? she yeah. married she married a G. <laughs> but you, this difference between y'all and uh, and all y'all, I'm curious about. This. Well, all, there's y'all, there's y'alls, and there's all y'alls. All right. That's pretty much covers it. All y'alls is the difficult one. That's the pluperfect uh, plural possessive. <laughs> all y'alls. So, so basically, y'all is singular. All y'all is plural. And then, <laughs> yeah, plural. You don't say all y'all come back now. You hear? You say y'all come back now. You hear? You say y'all. And then right. it's like all y'all have a problem with coming back here. Yeah, you, you, know, you wouldn't do that. You'd say uh, all y'alls. Get all y'all's cars out of this lot. Yeah. Yes, that's. I think it's all the stuff that you people own. All y'all's cars. That's correct. Okay. Okay. All right. I think we need to move on. I think, I think we, we do. need to. Go. I could talk about this for hours, but let's go. <laughs> let's go you ahead. do that. We'll shut off your mic, and I'll ask uh-huh. Kinky this next question. This comes from Kelly in Venice, California. Kelly asks, "When I bring or serve my homemade fruit cake for the holidays, 
Should I tell folks before or after they try it and like it, as they inevitably do, that I baked it about four months beforehand, just following Grandma's recipe? Uh, Kelly, you're, you're right on target with that. <laughs> the fact is, uh, uh, the fruitcake thing is a little, you know, they're from Corsicana, Texas, is the fruitcake capital of the world. Is that so? Also the home, yeah, it's true. It's also the home of Billy Joe Shaver. The singer. They tell me that you can, yeah, the, the poet and the singer, yeah, yeah, that these things can hang around for longer than a year. And okay. be just great, you know. So, so there's nothing to worry about with a with a fruitcake that's uh, four months old. Yeah, getting on in years, and I'm, I'm not speaking of myself. I want to I want to know what makes a place the fruitcake capital of the world. Do they have things made of fruitcake? Do they just make a ton of fruitcake. I think they paint a sign that says the fruitcake capital of the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's one for Billy Joe Shaver. He'll have to uh, tell us that. <laughs> we'll have him on next. Yeah. So, so should Kelly tell the people though that it's? It seems like she thinks they won't understand that a cake can be four months old. Well, of course they won't. She, she's living in California, and they don't understand any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Uh, Kinky Friedman, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. Gentlemen, Rico, Brendan, may the God of your choice bless you. Thank you very much. While traveling through the Lone Star State, I lost my lunch before I ate. It happened in a bullethead cafe. Humorist and musician Kinky Friedman, he wrote the foreword to Willie Nelson's new book, Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die. He is also in the midst of his, quote, bipolar tour, in which he is playing 28 shows in 27 days. You think he'd do 28 shows in 14 cities, but that was a very Texas-centric edition of our etiquette segment. But we take questions from all 50 states, including Rhode Island. You can send them to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, holidays are coming up, so Italians like myself are looking forward to the traditional Christmas Eve feast of the seven fishes. You know, we actually do the same thing in my house, even though we're not Italian. Is that true? It's totally true. And But my mother counts goldfish crackers as one of the fishes. I'm... (laughs) I don't think that counts, unfortunately. Don't tell that to my mother. I won't. But look, at least crackers are crackers. Mm -hmm. This year, I'm going to wonder, as I'm feasting, do I know what fish I'm eating? Really? Yeah, because there have been a slew of stories in newspapers around the country where reporters go to shops. They buy, say, Red Snapper. They have it DNA tested, and it turns out it is often a totally different fish than advertised. This is serious. This week, the Boston Globe ran a follow-up to a story they published back in 2011 about this. So I spoke to one of the reporters, Beth Daly. She started by telling me the Globe now actually has a fish lab. Well, in the bowels of the Boston Globe, there's lots of empty rooms. And if you open one door with a key and use your ID tag for another door. Sounds like James Bond. (laughs) And open another door, you will find a room that's fairly smelly, but has uh, two enormous freezers where fish samples are in and and will remain until we think there's no liability issues or people may want to retest the fish. So it's a tiny room. We spend a lot of time there. Uh, I'm sure that's what you got into journalism for. Um, (laughs) Exactly. But thank you for doing so. So in in 2011, when you first did this, how many of these establishments had mislabeled fish? Oh, yeah. So we went to 134 restaurants and stores. And of that, the vast majority had mislabeled seafood in the order of 70% or so. That is amazing. 
And these are not, I mean, these are not just low-end restaurants, right? There were a range of establishments you looked at. Yeah, it was all over the map. In some low-end restaurants, you had fish testing fine. In some really high, very well-respected, very beloved uh, Boston restaurants, you had essentially fake fish being served. And it was a very stunning thing, I think, for a lot of people to wake up and read in the paper. Of course. And uh, when you went back this year, what did you do and what did you find? So this year we said, okay, let's go back to the restaurants that had mislabeled fish and test them again. See if they cleaned up their act, basically. Exactly. You want to see if they sort of publicly got called out and we're going to do the right thing. Well, we went to 58 restaurants. And of that, 76% of the fish was mislabeled again. <laughs> so they're still doing it's, it. It was, yeah, it was stunning. When these restaurants up and down swore us, they were going to fix the problem. Well, that, that's my question. Why? I mean, you would think the media scrutiny would cause them to lose business, but this persists. So why does it keep happening? Yeah, I think it did cause some of them to lose business, at least from a lot of readers I heard of. But it also became apparent this time around that the problem was not just in the restaurant. It was the supply chain. The supply chain is very, very complicated in fish. We get most of our meat from like 14 countries. Most of it's actually from the U.S. We get fish from 123 countries. In fact, 91% of the fish we eat is imported. And so you can sort of see the problem. If you're an unscrupulous like distributor, dealer, fisherman, whatever, whoever you are, you can just sort of say, oh, this is a more expensive fish. And I would and then say, of course, you know, in a low-end restaurant, maybe the chefs don't know any better. But at a high-end restaurant, especially with the concentration on sourcing your fish, knowing the person that you're buying it from, how can you justify not knowing what you're serving, even if somebody's giving yeah. you a fake product? Yeah, that's a really important question. And I, I don't know, maybe the sous chef received it. Mm. You know, a lot of the fish today, because it's imported, and even the local fish, a lot of restaurants don't um, fillet it themselves. The fish doesn't come and hold to the restaurant. They they buy it already sort of pre-cut, which, you know, it doesn't come with like a, a picture on it of what it is. It just looks like white fish. Well, actually, since we're on the subject, how what were the most often counterfeited fish? What are the ones that if we see it on the menu, we can feel nice and worried about what we're actually yeah, going to eat? If, if you ever think you're getting red snapper in, in, in a restaurant, uh, I'd really question it. Really? Uh, ever? Really. I mean, maybe if you really trust the chef. But two things. So if you go to a sushi restaurant, I guarantee you most of the time it's to I mean, there's not been a case that we've tested or, or I think any other DNA testing of similar you know, stories like ours, which has happened around the country a lot, has never been anything but tilapia or maybe some other species, but it's not red snapper. Even when you go to really high-end restaurants, we went to a, a restaurant chain that's uh, very, very popular and well-known and very respected called Smith & Walensky in the East Coast. Yeah. You know, very old steakhouse seafood restaurants. They were serving a red snapper for an enormous sum of money. I can't recall, like, you know, $40 or something. And it wasn't tilapia, but it was a crimson snapper, which is much cheaper. Mm. And so high-end restaurants that actually are trying to do the right thing, get caught in this conundrum of that. There's actually like more than 200 species of snapper, yeah. and most of them are cheaper than red snapper. So nomenclature becomes the problem. There's also a problem with some one of the fish that is often substituted for better fish is escalar. So escalar is uh, fondly known in the seafood industry as the X-lax fish. Oh, and man. Everyone knows what X-lax is. <laughs> and it's actually banned in Japan and banned in Italy. You're not allowed to have it there because it can cause such severe gastrointestinal issues. Awesome. Yeah, I know. It's not great. I mean, look, are two little slices of escalar and a piece of sushi going to make you have, you know, a series stomach problem. Some people say yes, some people say no, but, you know, at least you should know you're eating this really waxy, you know, oily fish. And most people think they're eating albacore tuna. So it's often substituted for albacore tuna? We found only one instance it wasn't. 
Yeah, it was Escalar all the time. And just one restaurant who had sort of sinned last year, if you will, um, corrected the problem, a very nice Japanese restaurant, and put albacore in. But mm-hmm. albacore is really expensive, so you can sort of see the incentive not to do that, right? Is this mainly the incentive for those who are maybe not getting duped by the supply chain? It's just it's purely economic, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate on that. But yeah, I think it's economic. I mean, we tested all these different fish species and every single one, two years running, except for one restaurant, it was always a lesser expensive species mm. being substituted for a more expensive species. Suspicious. I mean, come on, someone's making a buck off this. Yeah. Welcome to capitalism. Uh, <laughs> one last thing. Can you maybe give us a primer on how to maybe tell the difference between fish that are often counterfeited and fish that are often used as a substitute? I mean, for instance, what are the identifying characteristics of, say, Escalar versus Albacore? Escalar is white. It is so white, it blinds you. I mean, it is a really white fish. There's no nothing in it that looks a little pinkish. Albacore will look a little pinkish uh, sometimes, and so you'll be able to tell that way. So basically, if you go to a sushi restaurant and you want to order Albacore, bring like a photographer's white card and (laughs) engage it. Beth Daly, thank you so much for the uh, rather upsetting news. Well, thank you for having me. I hope you have a nice dinner tonight. And Brendan, Beth says the FDA just doesn't have the manpower to police this issue. So for now, it's going to be up to customers to call out fakes when they find them. Sure. Just using your handy pocket DNA testing kit, right? Yeah. (laughs) If you've got one handy. you got to be careful with those, though, because you might discover that Red Snapper is not only tilapia, but it's also your birth mother. Oh, no. And now it's time for your letters. Along with the notes we receive each week from our parents asking us when we're going to get real jobs, we also receive emails and messages from people who aren't related to us who actually listen to the program. It's amazing. Some of whom correct us like our parents do. Like, for instance... Hi, my name is Greg. I'm from Minneapolis. You featured a story about a very famous cellist who was taking advantage of frequent flyer miles. Problem is, you got his name wrong. It's Lynn Harrell, not... Lynn freaking Harris. And by the way, he's such a famed cellist that the Dallas Symphony Orchestra has a competition named after him. Wow. So yes, Lynn freaking Harrell, we apologize. The Lynn freaking Harrell Award, I believe, is the competition. Uh, During our etiquette segment a few weeks back, we answered a question from a man named Carl from Kyrgyzstan who said he was getting grief from locals for being left-handed. Then we got this letter. I am also a Carl from Kyrgyzstan, albeit a different one. What are the odds that there's two lefties named Carl in Kyrgyzstan? Uh, It's not a big country. But my experience was a little bit different from his. I did live with Kyrgyz people, so I had a lot of meals with them. Being left-handed, it never really bothered anybody. They would kind of ask about it without reservation. And they would usually just want to talk to me about famous lefties. So, Brendan... Obviously, mm-hmm. only way we can find out who's telling the truth here is for a third left-handed Carl from Kyrgyzstan to write to us and tell us about his experience. Carl, we await your message. Please send it. Well, lastly, a while back, I spoke with linguist Ben Schott about restaurant vernacular. Mm. He explained a number of slang terms and acronyms which waitstaff use to describe guests. One of the acronyms he mentioned was NPR, which sure. at a restaurant called Diner in Brooklyn stands for Nice People Get Rewards. Hmm. So in other words, if people are nice, they should become something. Of course. Apparently not everyone who worked at Diner was down with the lingo. Hey, this is Caitlin from Brooklyn, New York. I used to work at Diner, and the first time I came across a plate of food with a ticket 
labeled NPR. I uh, elbowed my way to the front of the pack and snatched it up with great excitement to be the one to finally get to meet Terry Gross. Unfortunately, those people who are simply getting a nice person reward I still hold out hope that I'll get to meet Terry Gross. Get in line, Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brendan worked for Terry years ago, actually, and I have yet to meet her myself. But when I do, you can bet I will be a big mocker and treat her like a soigne. In other words, he'll pick up the check. That's right. So hold him to it, Terry. Folks, that's the dinner party for this week. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of our program. Tamika Adams and James Kim are our intrepid interns. Thanks also to Robbie Carmen, Brendan Willard, Chris Peters, Ali Lozoff, Peter Clowney, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. Thanks for listening. Bon appétit.